I think about the innovators dilemma, it seems to relate to a Paul Graham article. What was it? Breaking the board, something like that. Well, about 20 years back where he writes about how they used Lisp to write BioWeb. It's like, we're already in, we're already in podcast mode and we haven't done the intro. Uh, it's like, stop talking, Steven and resume once, uh, once, once we're in full podcast. Cause like, I'm like, we're just going to be repeating this. Uh, I just got overexcited at having so anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with me, I have four panelists. We're going to go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, then go to Marshall, and finish with Rich. I'm Bob Terrio. I am the GA enthusiast, and I'm working on the J Wiki, and there'll be developments on that in the next uh, six weeks. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APL and Cube programmer. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I started array programming with Jay, um, and then I worked for Dialogue for a while, and now I make my own language, uh, BQN. I'm Rich Park. Uh, I'm an APL programmer, educator, and evangelist working for Dialogue Limited. And as I mentioned before, my name's Connor. I am a research scientist and C++ developer at NVIDIA, but I'm an array language enthusiast at large. And I think before we get in today's dis into today's discussion, we've got three announcements. Uh, first, we'll go to Rich, uh, then to Steven, and then back to me. All right, so I'm actually uh, recording right now from Olhão, Portugal, which I've probably butchered slightly. Uh, every time I've asked, I'm, yeah, I'm not convinced that they're convinced that I can pronounce that. But uh, at the Dialogue 22, user meeting annual user meeting but this time for the first time in a couple of years in person so um you know we've had hands-on workshops uh, on sunday and then uh, i've just come off the end of the second day of presentations um which has been really awesome today's been focusing largely on like uh, apl performance in dialogue interpreter um and it's worth pointing out just off the front here that uh, recordings from the user meeting, all the talks that are being given, have been given so far and will be given, uh, will be available for you to watch on YouTube in about, probably about a month uh, from now. But um, yeah, I don't know if I should say much more than that at this point, I'll let Stephen talk. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we held a Vector Dojo online working in queue problem solving i was somewhat taken aback by the number of people who expressed interest in coming to that but we managed to accommodate everybody who turned up with the help of a couple of colleagues who worked as tutors we spent most of the time working in pairs problem solving with the tutors circulating uh, people seem to enjoy it very much. We've got a couple of hours work and we're going to do one again in the next few weeks. I haven't set the date yet, but if you're interested uh, and you didn't make the first one, write to me at SJT, that's Sierra Juliet Tango at a 5JT, SJT at 5JT.com and we'll get you in. Awesome. So that's two resources basically to learn more about array languages. The first one, APL dialogue videos plus plus because there's other folks uh, presenting at the conference and then also yeah loads of people yeah and other folks and I saw a uh, a tweet from the dialogue account saying that the videos would be online soon so um, whether it's a month or sooner um, definitely links in the show notes and then also for the vector dojo to learn more about Q 
And my announcement is, on top of those two, another resource, which I think I mentioned briefly in the last episode, a uh, the opening talk of the Paradigm Conference, which looks at sort of five mainstream programming languages versus five uh, less well-known languages, one of which is APL, is out on YouTube now. So you can find that link in the description as well. And with all that out of the way, I will throw it over to Bob, who is going to introduce our topic for discussion today. So if you're following along, the last uh, episode, we talked about doing this episode as the Iversonian languages versus other array languages. And we kind of mentioned that we do tend to call audibles and change things. And today we have changed things. So today that it will not be our topic. My guess is it'll probably be our topic next episode. Right now, our topic, um, I think, is, has, has been pressing for a long time, but we've never actually addressed the elephant in the room. And that is, how do we make the array languages more popular? Now, this podcast is one way of doing that, and there's been a lot of great response from it, and it's been, I think, quite successful that way. In fact, I think it surprised a lot of people um, that were actually 38 episodes in now. Um, I'll, I know people who told me that, yeah, you'll do four episodes, and that's all I'll be to talk about. Surprised me. so one of the panelists it surprised and and yet he's still here so there still must be things to talk about um and i i think there is an awful lot to talk about and and one of the things that when i when i thought about putting together this podcast one of the things was that there seemed to be an awful lot going on within the array communities that nobody knew about um, unless you were already in the community. So it's a little bit of a window into the community. And today, I guess to sum up the topic, it's how do we open that window and get the community out of the enclosure it's in and out into the general population so more people are aware of it? Because um, I find it really... Well, a, a number of things I find very frustrating in the world. One of them is the um, the the barrier that's put up in people's face towards mathematics. And to me, these languages are excellent, are an excellent way to get in and, and actually play with mathematics and make mathematics a creative, creative endeavor, which I really believe it is. I don't, you know, people talk about it being, you know, numbers and arithmetic and stuff, but it's not that. It's that when you're in grade school, but it's not that when you actually start working with mathematics and the, the manipulations you have to put your brain through to be good at it, um, is substantial and these languages i believe really help that so how do we get these languages out there we have a number of people (laughs) who are doing their best on this podcast and a variety of other ways and i think that's the topic of the episode today so um i'll start off with something that i picked up just the other day not i didn't pick it up the other day but i found it the other day again and it's a book called everest the hard way and Everest the Hardware is written by Chris Bonington, um, and it was uh, the 1975 Everest edition, uh, expedition. They took a big team of people up to the top of Everest, and my book just fell on the floor. Um, and they had to do logistics, and they did lo- their logistics with APL. They did their logistics with an APL programmer named Stephen Taylor who actually wrote an appendix in the book. That was the first time I was really aware of APL. I was just coming out of high school, and I said, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of that language. And then I think three years later, I was actually going into computing science, and I actually heard about APL again. But um, at that point, I'll, uh, maybe I'll 
turn it over to Stephen for a little bit of history about how that ap- approach worked and whether there was a ripple out from there to get out to a wider community by using APL in, in that particular way. Yeah, that that happened because the managing director of the company I worked for, a Canadian timesharing company called Comshare, um, was... Um, was the chair of the Mountaineering Club, and he volunteered my services to Chris. And so I trekked up to his home in the Lakeland with a an APL terminal, or a terminal rather, and an acoustic coupler, which some of our older listeners will remember was something you jammed a phone handset into, and you get a, a data connection. <clears throat> and... Um, I was supposed to be doing the logistics, but I didn't have the math of the logistics. So what I discovered that my client, Chris, was a very keen board game player. And so I set it up as a game, the logistics for climbing the mountain. And um, we, I wrote a, a pretty simple loop in APL so that he could make his moves and send oxygen and climbers hither and thither. and um, we played with this model of building the supply pyramid. Um, so from a programming point of view, that was my first ever APL project. And I think possibly my first solo programming project where writing software for someone else to use. Um, my APL skills are pretty limited. My mathematics wasn't up to solving the logistics problem. But um, because the language was so good for hacking with, I was able to do something useful. Um, so we, we got we got some useful software and useful experience out of the very limited resource made available to the expedition. From reading the um, reading the appendix that you wrote to the book, you had the first working prototype in in three days. That's how simple it was. Yeah. And um, to give to give the expedition its due, this was the last of the big siege-style expeditions for a Himalayan peak uh, before people worked out how to use alpine climbing techniques and go scrambling up there much more dangerously but much faster. And uh, Chris's expedition got the most climbers on the top of Everest of any expedition uh, by the hardest route then known. Um, and in the shortest time. And for people who aren't uh, mountain climbers, that actually is the whole key to safety is how fast you can move on a mountain because mountains are dangerous, especially big mountains like Everest. And the longer you're there, the bigger the risk you have. So you, if you can move through areas that are very dangerous very quickly, uh, you substan- you're much safer than a, than a person who's taking time to go through. And as Stephen said, the siege mentality was one that was replaced with the Alpine style, which was... Um, I think two climbers did it, uh, and they just have been done solo, just from top to bottom, almost in one push. No oxygen. No oxygen. Yeah, no oxygen. That's a big thing. And um, it, that's the change to it. So they've actually gone to, if, if we're looking at computers, kind of more of an agile development where you're really going absolutely lightweight to the top. But the older version required something lightweight to organize lo- the logistics. And it was APL in this case that was, quotes, the killer app. And I think we've got to come up with a better name than killer app, because I always think that's kind of a negative. And it's not. It's, 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 it's an application that can really help you. It moves across. It does things better. 
Um, but that's one approach to popularizing the languages, and we've got other people who have taken other approaches to popularizing languages, and maybe I'll f ask Rich if he wants to talk a bit about his videos and some of the stuff he's done with dialogue and that work that he's done to kind of spread the word, whether there's, there's opportunities there. I mean, I think so, because I'm going to keep doing them. Uh, but um, yeah, how did that start? Dialogue were already doing some webinars by the time I joined. And then I sort of got to, to continue that. Those were, and uh, continue to be largely like, um, you know, helping existing users to, to use features and especially for their sake, uh, new features or very specific things, which um, sometimes is useful for people to see outside of the array community. But I think, uh, and what I'm working on at the moment and going into the future is uh, doing a lot more bread and butter type programming in APL, because I find that one of the things with the array language media as we have it at the moment is um, we get a quite technical language philosophical. We like to talk about the um, really detailed ways in which sometimes uh, the array languages are different or can sometimes be useful. Well, yeah, are different to conventional languages, which for some people is a large amount of the appeal. But oftentimes it's not that long before they can get started. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of really excellent resources for beginning to understand, you know, okay, the syntax is different, but that's explained. Uh, here's how all the primitives work. Here's how they can be combined together. But then they still can hit this kind of sticking point with some of the tools or things which um, maybe in tools that they're already familiar with, they're like, oh, that's actually, I already know how to do this here, or I, or I can Google it, which is something we have limited, uh, you know, limited Google ability in the array language world as well. So, you know, the nice thing, and um, who talked about this? I think Elva Björk, one of the competition winners on a, on um, actually Stephen's Young APLs panel in 2000, I want to say 19 dialogue user meeting, he um, said one of the nice things he thought about uh, APL was uh, one of the first things you do in APL in contrast to other languages when you go to solve a problem is not Google the solution, um, you know, partially because I guess you can't, but then you, then you find that if you've learned it to an extent, you think about it and, and you can solve the problem. But he was also largely, I think, focusing on, you know, problem solving problems of the kind that we do talk about in array language media at the minute. It's, you know, sometimes artificial or sometimes data that you've already got in a clean way, um, ready to go in the problem well defined. But there are sort of, yeah, more pragmatic things just reading information into your workspace or whatever can be a significant challenge for people who are just getting started to see exactly how to do that with the wide range of things they want to do. So, um, so videos about that, I hope to do, you know, start doing and started doing one sort of thing, but want to do more of on my, um, rickety P YouTube channel. We can link that <laughs> self plug. <laughs> And that's actually something that Lib Gibson talked about as well. And when we interviewed her was, was the innovator's dilemma, which is when you get into a, a space where you're competing with other people who are already successful and established, 
the innovator's dilemma is that they're innovators and you're trying to come in, the best approach isn't to try and compete with them head-to-head. The best approach is to come in underneath them with something that's easier and maybe doesn't work as well, and that's a key thing. It doesn't have to work as well. These languages work really well, but the perception is that they're difficult. So in that sense, I suppose they, the perception is they don't work as well. But you come in at a point that's that's under, which is easier for more people to use, and then that's your foothold because you can't compete with the people at the top end who are already established in the areas that they're working. And I think that's really true in a lot of the financial stuff with APL. I think the, yeah, the thing that we've got that's easier and really much more pleasant than a lot of other uh, languages and software generally is once you've got the stuff workspace ready to go, playing with it in a way that's natural to your problem space and and the way that you think about how you want to approach changing the data is just lovely. It's just the talking to everything else that um, that tends to be the pain point. Yeah, so that's one of the things that kind of strikes me about the about getting into APL through uh, helping someone climb Mount Everest. I guess is that uh, all you did was sat down and write the programs. So you didn't have all these inputs. You didn't say, "Well, how can I scrape the topography of Everest off of this web page?" Um, and um, I think that's a lot less what programming is like now, not necessarily because it should be, but maybe just because there's more data available. Um, so one thing I see like people asking about, now this is unrepresentative because you know, if somebody's able to just start with BQN and uh, write out their program that does what they want, they may never come on the BQN forums and ask about it. But the things that people do ask about, um, they're... So there are, you know, questions just about like, can I do this in the language? Can I do that? But also there's a lot about, you know, from somebody who hasn't yet started BQN, well, is this going to be able to serve web pages? Is this going to be able to uh, to interact with a database or whatever? Um, and so it's a lot less like seeing the language as a tool to, uh, to figure things out and more of it as seeing as, it as a piece in a system, which... Uh, I guess it's not really as good of a role for uh, for these array languages because they um, they're not designed to connect with other existing things that are out there so much. I think that's something that that when we had Grit uh, Gitta Christensen on uh, that she mentioned is that for most people, uh, it's subject matter experts who may not be programmers that end up working with the language because the language is relatively simple to use if you're not a computer programmer. And you already have the experience. I think that sort of fits in well with what Stephen was doing with Chris Bonington, who's, believe me, an expert, beyond expert mountaineer. Um, And he had that subject matter expertise. But he's able to work with Stephen, and Stephen got the click, which was Chris likes board games. And it's a great way to introduce somebody to that kind of flexible thinking. And then... I think, I believe Chris was an army officer. <laughs> so by the time by the time it comes to you know logistics, you give him a tool and say, point him that direction and he's got a goal. Well, he's going to use that tool pretty effectively. And I think that's the sort of thing that can happen with subject matter experts. And I guess I'll come back to Connor, who's been sort of, you know, sitting back because he sort of threw it in my direction. <laughs> <laughs> and and you've you've come into the array languages kind of an, as an outsider, so I'd love to hear your impressions on 
where things are, where they're going, and where they've come from? Because I think that's that you're the you're the expert in this area. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I think that probably I have the least interesting or important things to say here because I don't think I'm necessarily trying to or have ever really thought about how to popularize array languages because that I don't think is is my goal. Um, I think you know for. Many of our panelists, they either have a language or work for a company where, you know, obviously you're interested in having more users. Um, well, to, to point out my kind of specific situation, no, I'm not really interested in having more users in particular. <laughs> um, my goal with BQN is just to make sure that people who want to do array programming have a really good modern language that's designed for that. So my goal is really to, you know, first just make the language good. And I mean, the Primarily, I look at, you know, what do I want to use? What what do I enjoy programming with? Um, so that I know at least it works for one person. Um, <laughs> and then I look at making sure it's accessible to those who find it. But at the same time, I mean, a lot of Bob's talking about subject matter experts. They're not um, the people who find BQN or the people who are interested in programming languages as like as a thing in themselves. They're not people who have a problem that they then want to solve. Yeah, I'd argue that's what Connor, you're like as well, right? You're one of these uh language programming language polyglot collectors mm -hmm. in a sense you go around uh hoovering up programming languages left right and center to see what you can see what you can learn for yourself and your abilities rather than yeah it's, it's the traditional apl story i suppose is the is the domain experts the people for whom it was such a like revolutionary uh tool to be able to do things with a computer as someone who wasn't an expert computer programmer or a programmer at all. Yeah, true. I think that, uh, and I, th I think, yeah, what Marshall said is it's important is to try and articulate what, uh, maybe not each individual's goals are, but like, yeah, what, what the goals of projects or languages are. Um, and for, and for me personally, you know, with my content that I produce talks, YouTube, etc. I mean, I think, I think definitely this podcast is an attempt to give people uh, an alternative media source that they can consume. There's no, you know, array language podcast. I think, what was it? Um, Trolls Hendrickson, our, our last guest and he, he, oh yeah, that's something worth announcing. He released a blog post after his conversation with us that um, followed up and answered a few questions that he felt either went unanswered or not as answered or as articulately as he would have liked. So that's a great resource to read. We'll link that in the show notes. But he, I think he started the blog uh, probably a little bit tongue in cheek, or maybe he was being serious, but he said is, uh, you know, the, the world's premier uh, array language podcast, uh, which is like saying, you know, my dad's my, <laughs> my favorite uh, father. Well, no, he's always talking about Futhark is like the, the uh, world's favorite language named after the runic alphabet and things like that. Joke <laughs> in the same vein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, identifying what our goals are. And I started making content uh, and started covering like array languages just because a lot of the stuff was like mind blowing to me. Um, and then I would, I would cover, you know, six or 10 or tw 16 languages, depending on the video. And it wasn't because I wanted everybody, and I try and articulate that a lot of the times in my videos. I'm like, the goal of this video is not to convince people that APL is the language for you, drop Python or drop C++. Almost always, you know, keep programming in whatever language you're getting paid to at your work. You know, it's very rarely, you know, there are some situations, but it's going to be a, a very small percentage where 
it's the right idea to switch from whatever language is currently being used for some project to some other language, let alone sort of a esoteric language. Um, but it's, for me, it's more like I get super excited about something that I found in some paper from 1979 that is a solution to some problem I previously solved. And then I'm like, Oh my God, I got to go make a video and tell people about this. And some, some of them it'll land and be like, wow, this is mind blowing. And other people will just be like, this is hieroglyphics. And yeah, so it's, I don't think I've spent a ton of time thinking about how to popularize them. I think, you know, this podcast is awesome for those that are looking for this kind of content. And I mean, um, Bryce on my other podcast, ADSP, we've talked about several times is, especially in this 2022 space, depending on when you're listening to this, this is, you know, late 2022 right now in the C plus plus ecosystem, there's a ton of, um, evolution talk there's carbon from google there's cpp front from microsoft um there's other languages like jacked or yacked i'm actually not sure how it's pronounced and so there's a ton of discussion about how is you know um c plus plus going to evolve is some language going to replace it is it going to be some sort of successor project and one of the things that always comes up is like it has to be 10x better in some way in order for it to have a chance of being successful and i think when it comes to popularizing array languages, I think definitely content like this uh, podcast and other resources help. But potentially, like if I was going to start thinking about that, that's what I would think about is like, you know, how are array languages 10x better um, if your goal is to popularize? And I think K and Q are probably the best example of an array language that identified their 10x and did that amazingly well. And I think no one would deny that Q and its space that it's entered has been phenomenally successful um, because I think it's, I'm not sure what, you know, maybe Steven is better to talk to what the 10X is, but, you know, performance I think is 10X. And I think if you talk to the people that use K and Q, they would talk about how much faster they're able to, um, you know, develop or write whatever they're trying to write. You know, I, I talked to someone recently who I think was using Scala for their job and, and he's trying to convince the, their employer to potentially use Q. And he was just like, I can just be, I can be 10 times faster. Like I'm writing all this overhead code and I know, how, I know how to say what I want to say and I can do it way faster in Q, but because I'm using Scala, it slows me down. And so I think, you know, 10X in terms of perf and 10X in terms of um, how quickly you can get things done. Um, and the question is, I think for other array languages is, is what is the 10x and for me personally it's like 10x maybe even 100x is it's the way that i think about solving things um but that not necessarily is going to that is not necessarily going to increase the popularity of usage and that's that's another thing to think about is what does popularity mean is it popularity in people who know about it popularity in people who use it for their day job people who use it for side projects people who use it for a background sort of desktop calculator Anyways, these are all just things that I've been mulling around in the back of my head while listening to other folks talk. And yeah, I'll stop rambling and let people respond uh, if they've got thoughts. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I guess it, it brings it back around to what I was talking about mathematics. I think that the thing you have to be very careful about when you're saying 10 times is people think about what can you do that is 10 times better? Well, now you think you've got to go 10 times better than the best people doing things. And I... I really think the interview that we did with Liv Gibson was uh, illuminating that you don't have to be 10 times better at the best area. You have to be 10 times better in an area that might be underserved right now. And I think that the, the, 
the context you should look at is where are you looking for that 10 times better? And I mean, for me, and, and actually going back to Ken Iverson, because so much of what he was doing in, in APL, it started out as an educational tool so that he could explain array programming or array programming, uh, you know, mat matrices to students and, and, and talk about linear algebra in a, a meaningful way. And then it became, you could actually use a computer as a tool to express that. Um, and then he went to Jay, and most of what Ken did, aside from the development that he did with Roger in the early days, was educational. He's, he's got all these live texts that are labs. And the recent um, weekend that I spent with everybody down in Victoria, um, the labs came up as a topic. The labs in Jay, essentially what they are is text within the IDE, so that you're, you can read the text and then you can actually do work and, and you can actually the person who's writing the lab can actually change variables and change input so that you can work in a different environment as the lab progresses. So you, there's somebody holding your hand along the way and guiding you, giving you instructions and setting things up so that you can use them in, in a working interactive development environment. And, and that at that time, which was I think 1992, 93, it, it, you know, Jupiter notebooks didn't exist. Those kind of things weren't there. Wolfram, Wolfram, I don't think, had done his notebooks yet. Um, and so this was a way with just using this language, you could actually get in and manipulate, be guided and manipulate, and that was what the lab was. But the labs didn't go any further than that. They, I've done some work putting in videos. I've done some work with different areas, making them somewhat interactive you know, a little bit more, they're, they're more, they are pretty interactive to begin with, very interactive to begin with, that's their strength. But they didn't progress. So that was an area that you, there, there was a big jump, but it didn't quite take off at that point. Um, and I, I think that's, those are the areas, that, you know, when you say, do you want to, how, how, how do you want to grow your base? Well, I think the way to do it is education. But education is a very tough thing to get into because it's, uh, it, there's not a lot of innovation in education. Um, whenever innovation is used, it's trumpeted to the, you know, we were forced to innovate when we went to go to distance learning during the COVID crisis, um, you know, which is sort of ongoing. But, but, but people, people were pushed into that. And, and you, so a lot of people got into situations where it was, you know, an emergency situation, and that's the worst situation to try and get into and, and innovate and use that, those tools. Those tools are really, really good, but the way we were forced to use them was really, really not good, and that's why people have now sort of a very negative uh, feeling towards online learning. Mm. Um, so th if I was to identify an area that I think there's, there's a potential, it's to actually just use... These languages are very simple, interactive. They're, you know, they're interpreted. You don't have to compile them. Um, way to get students used to, they don't have to do all the work of, you know, they have to know their times tables, but they don't have to, you know, do them over and over and over again because the computer can do that. How you do it is becomes very important. Well, that was um, Jeremy Howard, who sort of a little while ago did his own fast AI uh, APL study group. Um, I think one of the early tweets he had at dialogue was about how, you know, he'd struggled to teach, um, 
I think arithmetic geometric series using traditional mathematical notation. Like, uh, his daughter and her friend uh, didn't grasp it that well, and then he went on to try list uh, list comprehensions, and then and then gave APL a go, and it apparently stuck really well. So I think there's something about uh, the the simplicity there that I'm guessing there's yeah. Well, there definitely is a massive range of topics in education, all the way from well. Uh, grade school mathematics to uh, the university topics which lead to the domain expertise which was the um, you know traditional way into APL for loads of people certainly loads of people at the dialogue user meeting for sure um, so yeah finding a way into there is definitely worthwhile uh, Adam and I actually it was um, around December 2019 we did a couple of workshops um, went to went to some high schools and, and tried to do some APL workshops there, but those were in a computer science context. Um, actually, that's probably a, a relief in hindsight because one thing we learned that was kind of interesting was, I mean, I don't know about the various ages of, of people on the panel right now. I've got a vague idea, but <laughs> no specifics. But um, I, let's see, was doing year 10 2005 so that's when you start well, year eight nine that's when you start doing more stuff with computers they're teaching you how to use word processors and other office things getting ready for when you will almost inevitably have to use that in the workforce somewhere <laughs> these days um but at that time you know a lot, a lot of families had personal computers in the home around that time that was sort of had started to happen or was, was quite established or a lot of uh, people in schools had laptops. So their ability to just use a computer interface was as good or better than the people teaching, you know, um, the software to use. So you didn't have to, there's a lot of stuff that was just already there for you. Um, you know, it sort of speeds up the learning of these types of things quite a lot. But now it turns out because um, the iPad and the touchscreen interface is the more popular you know, sort of home computing device. You have to start from scratch all over again. That was a weird circular thing to learn about. I imagine that makes, you know, these sorts of things more tough. Well, I mean, thanks to being terse, maybe the array languages still have a chance. Uh, we can just go straight to whiteboard to start with. But eventually, yeah, it's like you said, Bob, you don't we really have to write out the entire matrix of a multiplication table. Uh, by rote every time the computer can do it when it's executable you can um, navigate much easier you can play with things much more easily than having to do it by hand and and with ipads um, actually the discussion this last week uh, on the j forums has been ian clark talking about he's he has an ipad iphone implementation of j901 on you could it's an app you can download it and you can run it off your ipad and your phone Apple has a number of very uh, strict rules about what you can import and how you can do it. It turns out that he's done all he can with his application to make it accessible to people. But there are additional things that you can do um, to use a file system to bring in information. And it turns out that using an iPad with, um, with J is actually not a lot more restrictive than any other way. You just know how, have to know how to bring files in through the Apple file system, which they will allow because they assume that you're doing it this way so that you know what you're doing. 
Um, and it means that the areas where he can't rewrite his program and do it programmatically, you can do just as file manipulations. And um, there's a lot of people learning about that this week uh, on the J forums. It's very powerful. And and well, put a link into the the uh, the the J901. There are actually two applications on the iPads and iPhones. There's J901 and there's the old J700 that's been left there just sort of for purposes for people who might want to do that. But the 901 really is the one to use. Did you have anything else to add to that, Steve? Circling back to um, your the issue you were saying about identifying the ten the ten X's. So I apologize. While you were talking, I was consulting my experience, combing back through my memories, and um, I re- remembering remembering some incidents. One was Whitney asking me a few years ago if I'd been much concerned with performance in my programming experience. I had to say I hadn't. It's like in most of the programs I've written, uh, performance was kind of okay. It wasn't, wasn't particularly an issue. You, you wind up maybe optimizing a few particular things, but mostly, you know, whatever I wrote was, was fast enough. Whereas, of course, in Whitney's world, performance is not, um, what is it they say? Um, it's not everything. It's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... He, Whitney started KX with his then wife, Jeanette Lustgarten. And Jeanette told me some years ago, she said, all our customers at KX in those days uh, were people for whom everything else has failed. It's the only reason people use our technology is because they can't get anything else to run fast enough. Um, they do not come to us out of a desire to use our crazy language they used to us because nothing else will do. So that's a that's a 10x, if you like, performance. People come to the um, to certainly K and Q for performance. We you touched on what we could call time to market, speed of development. And that's an important one. Uh, years ago, famously, somebody asked Stefano Lanzavecchia, who was my predecessor as the editor of Vector, what he thought computer science had still to learn from APL. And he said he thought the lessons available from APL had pretty much been learned. And we were talking in an earlier podcast about uh, the ways that array methods have been have rippled out from the Iversonian languages. But he said, if you wanted to make a million dollars of by writing software, APL was your language to go for. And I can think personally of quite a number of examples of people who've taken, as you were saying earlier, the domain language, and they've been able to code it up into something usable. And the effort, because they didn't have to write all that ceremonial code and so forth, they could work very directly. So they get time to market out of that. And the I, w- I want to pick my friend Paul Mansour as a representative out of this out of this class. Um, he started out with um, working on the analysis of mortgage portfolios. 
and writing software to do that and eventually turned that into his own software product and his own company. And he's been very successful with that. Uh, but somewhere along the line, he fell in love with APL. I don't think he... I don't think that he started off on this work in order to um, use APL to make money or to solve a particular problem. APL was, for one reason or another, the tool that was to hand when he started on this work. But somewhere along the line, he fell in love with this stuff. And he's now deeply committed to the um, coding methods that, he, that he's found work for him, and also to the aesthetics. So... I've worked with Paul on on code. I've worked at his um, uh, worked in his office. Um, he's somebody who really cares about the way the stuff looks and works. How did that happen? Mm. Now, uh, some years ago, I was invited to give a talk at the J Software Conference in Toronto, uh, which about which I felt very honoured, but also a bit intimidated. Like I don't actually know any J worth talking about. <laughs> Oh, I thought about what I might talk to that audience about, and I worked up a little talk. Um, uh, I think you were there, Bob, um, which for which my original working title was Why I Am a Lousy Programmer. Um, my reasons for, um, for claiming to be a lousy programmer was that I'm not really interested in the machinery underneath. I'm not really interested in the performance or the speed of the algorithms. I, when I reflected on it, I just like the way it looks. I like it when you can use an inner product to achieve something really nifty. Basically, my confession is, my confession is that my primary motivator is the aesthetics. That's why I like working in this. It's why when I learned APL all those years ago and got invited to support Chris Bonington. I'm going to use APL for this. I could have used, you know, basic would have worked just as well, but I get pleasure out of writing this stuff and out of making it look beautiful. Um, while Paul makes um, a good living and uh, provides great software for his clients, I know that he gets an aesthetic kick out of this. And when I listen to Connor talking excitedly about algorithms and APL primitives, uh, I believe I'm listening to an aesthete. So we've so I've covered here three different motivations for using or being interested in the array languages. One is performance, like I gotta learn this language so I can write programs that actually run fast enough and maybe get paid the salaries that Q programmers get paid. Or I need a tool with which I can get what I know into form of software, APL is a pretty shrewd choice and it answers the innovator's dilemma is the other guys aren't using this, so maybe I've got an edge. Uh, and then there's the poor saps like me who just fell in love with it. Um, and I, I didn't in the end call my talk um, uh, why I am a lousy programmer. I thought it was cool to reference a lot of Canadian artists as I was in Toronto. Um, so I slipped in references to Joni Mitchell and Gordon Lightfoot. And I called my talk, I Came So Far for Beauty. Which is Leonard Cohen, right? 
Um, and it was a very good talk. And one thing I'll ask you about now, because I get this chance to do it, you say aesthetics, but I think it's a combination because it is the aesthetics of something like the inner product, but it's that combination of symbols that goes together. And then to me, the key thing is it's the power that you can use it for. So it's not just the how it looks, it's what it can do by how it looks. I think I do mean that as part of the aesthetics. Mathematicians use the word elegance a lot. And it seems in my world that lots of coders are motivated by aesthetics, but they pronounce it cool. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of talk when we were in Victoria about how to get information out. And one of the things that over and over again that I hear and I read on BQN is the excellent documentation. And I think that documentation is really important to get information out on a language that's relatively new. And Marshall, what's your secret to writing really good documentation? Because you write really good documentation. Um, well, it's not very secret, but there's several hundred hours poured into it. <laughs> uh, I mean, that that's about it, really. So um, I write what, what the thing does. I write... I feel like Bob must also be aware how much it is just a work factor if you're working on the JWiki in a similar... Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. There's an awful lot of work that goes into it. The thing I remember is, I think somebody asked Ken Iverson uh, how he got so good at writing papers. And he said, well, first you write 2,000 papers. <laughs> you might have decreased the number there. <laughs> yeah, I might have increased the number there. but but No, decreased. Oh, decreased? Do you think he wrote more papers before he got excellent at it? Yeah. Yeah, there's, al there's always sweat equity. But, but is there a point of view you take when you're writing documentation? I mean, you can just throw effort at it, but I, I know you're doing more than that. Yeah, well, it's more about uh, the things that I want to... Uh to make sure the user has. So I, you know, of course, say what the thing does, that's most important. Um, say some examples of how you would use it, if that's not obvious, like um, the group function in BQN is one that has a whole lot of uses. So a uh, group basically takes, um, if you're familiar with J, it's like key or in dialogue as well, but it's a little simpler. It's, um, you have a bunch of values and you have the indices in the result where you want those values to go. So those are two different arguments. And it forms a result where each element in the result is a list of all the values that had that index. Um, but it's, it's not at all obvious what you can use this for. And you can, in fact, use it for all sorts of things. You can, of course, uh, do like histogram type applications with it, but you can also, uh, you know, split up text, um, distribute things like if you had a bunch of servers and you wanted to put them into pools, uh, you could use group for that. Um, so all sorts of things. So that documentation page has a, a long list of examples of, you know, the different qualities of the ways that you can use it, the different like categories of applications. Um, but uh, even if there's not this, uh, these non-obvious ways, you always want examples that show what it does. So like if you're writing the documentation for reverse, this is pretty obvious, you know when you need it. Um, but it should start off with an example of, you know, reverse the string ABCD is the string DCBA. And that means that if somebody is just uh, 
if somebody basically knows what the function does and they just want a reminder, they can very quickly go to the page and um, see this example and say, oh, yeah, that's what it does. I remember now. Um, and something that I also do along those lines, uh, which also takes a whole bunch of time, is to uh, make diagrams that show how it works. So for like scan, say I have one that shows with arrows the whole flow of uh, the the way the function is applied at each step. Um, and then you uh, and you can see like the whole algorithm at once from this picture. So that works very nicely as a quick reference and also to, you know, before you start reading all these words to kind of get your bearings on like what what sort of context you're in, what the ultimate goal is. Uh, and then the actual text is going to tell you what exactly it does. Um, and things like how it applies to higher rank arrays or um, details that you wouldn't get in a picture that's kind of, uh, that's just showing you one usage. Do you have a uh, have a reader in mind when you're writing this stuff? I, I, I get the sense that you might sort of have a number of readers and that de depending on um, where they are in learning the language. Yeah, so I, I think it should serve a few purposes. Uh, what I try to do with documentation, and there's a lot of people who say also that you should have various different types of uh, resources, and I'm probably combining multiple ones in their view. Um, but the things I try to target are somebody who's new to the language, who doesn't know anything about array programming, really, who is uh, trying to you know, who who hasn't even encountered some of these concepts, like something like a, a scan they might not even have seen. Um, but then also somebody, uh, somebody who's uh, familiar with it wants, uh, is like in the process of learning the language and wants to, you know, get a quick, like doesn't remember what this function does, but needs to uh, go back and figure it out again. Um, or you've also got somebody who knows the function pretty well, but is missing a detail. So it needs to have all the details of what the primitive does. Um, and those need to be well organized and accessible. Although I think I kind of put that in a backseat role relative to introducing all the functionality. So it's the documentation maybe doesn't work so well as a reference. Um, and then something that I've been gradually de-emphasizing is the... Uh, programmer that is coming from APL or J or K. Because uh, what I find over time is that these programmers uh, very quickly get stuck on BQN because they're not like, a, it, it's not like APL or J or K. Um, and so they, uh, even if they, you know, want to get with it, eventually they find something that is just too different for them. And they say, well, that's it. I'm done. Back to this language that I know how to use that works how I like it. Um, and I'm giving up on BQN. Uh, so yeah, the, the current uh, group of people who are using BQN, I would say is actually the majority of them. Uh, BQN is their first array language or their first array language that they really stuck with. Do you make much of a distinction between uh, reference documentation and kind of introductory material? I do not. Um, that's just because, you know, I can only write so many copies of the documentation um, the specification is there if you really want, you know, just exactly what it does and no more. Um, it still tries to, you know, there's a, it has higher level descriptions, but they're pretty terse. They, they're intended for someone who's pretty familiar with BQN. 
So that's the two divisions I have. Um, and, you know, maybe in a language that had a larger user base, I would have uh, something between those. But uh, I think what I do have works pretty well for now. I think I think we're going to lose Rich shortly because he's got other duties back at the uh, the dialogue user meeting. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add before you uh, sign off, Rich? Uh, just the the types of documentation that Marshall's referring to is uh, also something I'm really interested in for dialogue. I think we actually yeah don't want to rag too much because there's a lot of comprehensive stuff that's really good, but um, sometimes when you want to read about how something works. You have to pass quite a lot of text before you get to the, um, you know, the thing you, the example that might make it clear for you. And I definitely want to work on flipping that on its head a bit and getting the thing that you can just glance at and go, oh yeah, I get, I know how that works. I can move on, or you know, scroll down further, read more, get all the details and stuff. So um, yeah, I agree with everything Marshall's saying there, and I do have to. Well, I can respond to that, and then I then I'll have the last word. So, dialogue. One thing dialogue is very good at is these uh, very short descriptions on the language bar, which um, I would think of that as at a glance, but it really is only a glance because if you need more than that, then it's uh, often not enough. But so actually, BQN does have something else that's modeled off of that, which are our help pages. Um, and one thing that's good about those is that they're organized. Um, not by the functionality, but by this symbol. So those were needed and people asked me for this a lot and I didn't have it. And um, eventually a user who goes by the name raise time has uh, actually stepped up and contributed these. Um, so now in BQN, you can, uh, you can, we don't have hover text, but you can right click on one of the symbols in the, in the web REPL and open up a help page for it, which is like dialogue. It's very short and just uh, says a brief summary of what it does and an example or two. So uh, go off, Richard, and enjoy the wonders of Portugal. Uh, thanks very much. <laughs> Happy reprogramming, everybody. <laughs> oh, I'll dub that in later. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Connor was nodding vociferously there about uh, you know talking about the the clicking on the be able to access the information from BQN but I'm also I'm going to push it back to you again because you are a polyglot you do have a number of different languages that you're following and so you do have experience across a wide range of languages what do you see happening with the array languages compared to some of these other languages that may be trying to establish ones that are successful ones that are where are the areas that you see that, that the array languages might be able to approve? Is that question for Marshall or me? Because that was... A, That's a, no, it's a question for you. <laughs> that description, you. Uh, polyglot, uh, um, that has experience in a bunch, is, uh, I think, applies to both of us. Yeah, I don't think I have as many as you. You're, you're both polyglots. But I, the, the key to you, I believe, is that you have fresh eyes when it comes to these languages. And fresh eyes is a... Uh, I've learned from uh, years of editing, fresh eyes is a, a skill and a talent that doesn't matter. In fact, the, the more skilled you get at doing something, the less skilled you are at having fresh eyes. You have to really work at that. It is a skill that you bring to the table. <laughs> so I'm putting it on you. Yeah, I mean, this isn't uh, fresh eyes, and this is completely doesn't answer your question, but it just makes me re remember when I first started my first job in 2014, uh, we had this complicated insurance software program and I had 
no idea what I was doing. So I would just, you know, try to get a sense of the landscape of all the functionality, which is, it was so vast, you know, it had been built over 30 years and serving insurance companies globally and in the States alone, like they have different insurance regulations by state. Anyway, so the point is, is like the plethora of combinatorial options was immense. And I would just go around and like, change options and stuff. And then I could crash the program like every 10 minutes just because I didn't know what I was doing. And so the setups that I would set up had absolutely like they didn't make any sense. And then I'd go and ask my boss, oh, I, oh, I, I think I crashed the program. He's like, uh, I don't think so. And then I'd, he'd be like, well, why were you doing this? And he's like, I don't know. Like, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on here. Like, I have, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, switching switches. It's like going into a uh, airplane cockpit and just flipping stuff around and then uh, watching the plane go down. Uh, and uh, anyway, so my point. No, you can only crash a plane once. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but the point being is my uh, new individuals that don't know what they're doing are the absolute best testers because they, they don't have this like, you know, uh, information that they come in with that they, Oh, I know how to basically set it up and then we'll test what makes sense. You know, they're testing what doesn't make sense, which inevitably, you know, people haven't thought about and then it ends up crashing. Anyways, I've totally forgotten what your initial question was, Bob. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Oh, you're such a good politician. You're so good at this. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll put it back to you one more time because, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take uh, lessons from your, your dad as a journalist. You don't let him off the hook that way. Um, so what I was saying was there are a number of different languages you're familiar with. Some of them are esoteric, I guess is a term that's used. They're not as popular as they might be or maybe should be. Which ones are doing things that you see that are effective in becoming more known and what areas might they be working in that you go, I understand why they think that would work, but that would never work. Um, and, and the reason I'm asking you, I'm sort of letting off the hook because I'm, I'm spooling out more information. That's something I shouldn't be doing. The reason I'm asking you um, is because with our experience, we look at it through our lens. And quite often somebody comes to us with an idea and says, what about this? And you go, oh, yeah, no, that was tried back in. And that didn't... I don't want that. I want to say, oh, that's an idea. We should play with that. And so coming back to you, what do you see different languages doing? What are they doing well? And what things might array languages do that might fit that? Um, So this question, I think, could be answered with nuance in that a lot of, there's a lot of YouTube videos that you'll see is like, top five programming languages to learn in 2022, which anyone that is serious about software development and programming that is actually making that video will start that video out, which is very few of them by saying, you know, this is a, you know, clickbaity question and you first have to answer what are you trying to do before you can answer, you know, what's the best language for that. Um, There's no, you know, Python is the best for everything or C++. Each of these language languages are better in certain domains, and that informs, you know, whether they're a good option or not. So that can be applied to this question as well, but I will sort of answer it with broad strokes in the more clickbaity fashion. Um, I think one of the biggest things is ease of being able to get stuff done. And by that, I mean, I am not a, I'm a professional C++ developer. You know, that's what I've been doing for almost 10 years now. And I find it easier to write a uh, 
you know, 2D graphics program or a little game in Python or in Rust than I do in C++. And I don't, I don't know Python or Rust as, like, I know Python quite well, but Rust I don't know anywhere near as well as I know C++. But because of Python's package management system and Rust's cargo and that you juxtapose that next to the fact that C++ doesn't have a package manager, it's just so much easier to get stuff done in Python. You know, there is, if you go dive deep into this, people will start to tell you about, you know, Python dependency hell, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, asterisk, there's a bunch of things that aren't great with stuff, but like the ability to go, uh, what is it called? Rust up with a Rust project where basically you go Rust up and it just automatically builds like your project infrastructure, including a little um, main hello world program that you can just start automatically, um, you know, modifying is, it's just so much like I remember the first time I really sort of programmed something small in Rust. It made me like cry inside because of how easy it was to get going in Rust. And half the time I'll get started, I could list you off like two or three C++ projects that I, I get started, get really excited on. And then I get to the point where I want to, you know, add uh, static analysis which is using Clang Tidy. And there's like, it's just a terrible story for getting started. You got to go download some Python file and you got to set up, you know, CMake if you really want to get serious about it because trying to run it manually on the command line is just a mess. And then I'll just sort of like, I'll lose, I'll lose the excitement and then I'll just stop working on the project. Whereas with Python, like the solution is always a stack overflow away and, you know, I can just, I can just go pip three, install whatever I need. Guarantee you there's a library out there that, like, because the language is so large, which is a whole other thing. Anyways, this is just one small thing that I'm focusing on package management and, like, getting the ball rolling. But just how easy it is to get things done without having to, like, worry about the uh, package management or infrastructure or building. Or if I want to, you know, if I'm in Python and I want to format things, I can just super quickly go in VS Code and download uh, Black and Pep8 extensions and poof, click a button and I'm done. It's like so much more difficult than C++. I got to go set up a .clang format file if I want to customize things and I customize everything. And then, you know, depending on how it's set up, you know, it's not going to work out of the box and then I might need to go download some other, you know, uh, tool that's going to actually run it properly. And so this is a, once again, a long-winded ramble, but I think the things that newer programming languages are doing really, really well is making that not barrier to entry, but barrier to like pr programming a small project, super low. And they basically are just, if you want, you can throw your hands up, click a button. They have a thing, you know, in Rust, they call it Rust up, I think. I could be getting that wrong, but insert whatever the correct word is, if that's the wrong word, and you're off to the races. And on top of that, I think probably the second thing after that is like the barrier to getting started is the community around it. Rust also does a really great job. I think of having a similar community to sort of the uh, APL farm discord, where if you've got a question, you can go and ask and um, Rust has become like a very Googleable language. And another great thing, I mean, this won't really happen for array languages because almost all of them, if not all of them in the Iversonian circle are interpreted, but um, compiler driven development is a term that came out of, I want to say it's Elm, um, but it's a term that basically means like your, your compiler errors don't just tell you what's wrong. They give you like suggestions. Like it is once again, like I cry inside 
when I experience programming in Rust and I do something that is wrong and they say, this is not correct. And then they give me like four or five lines of ASCII art giving a description of like, you probably were trying to do this, maybe do this. And they just give me a, a line of code that I can copy and paste. And I'm like, holy smokes. Like, and even when things aren't wrong, they'll give me suggestions on how to prove my code. If I've added a keyword mute for making a local variable mutable, but I never went and changed it, it'll say, hey, you marked this as mutable and you never actually changed it. You, n you never mutated it. So like, you can get rid of that. Like, it is so pleasant. It's like having the little clippy graphic from, you know, if our uh, listeners are old enough but to, a good version. to, yeah, it's like a good, and I think that's actually what they call, they might call it Rust Clippy. Um, I could be wrong about that. I'm, I'm not a Rust developer, uh, but it's just, it's so pleasant to be programming and learning the language and basically having the compiler. I don't even, I don't need to go to the internet. I just, the compiler's helping me out as I go. And yeah, so community, package management, you know, uh, lowering the barry barrier, not to entry, but like to programming more than like a one-liner. Because I think a lot of array language enthusiasts, including myself, like 95% of the stuff I do is like one-liner. Um, and don't get me wrong, you can do a lot with one line <laughs> in an array language. But I haven't, um, I think a tic-tac-toe program is probably the, the largest thing that I've coded in an array language. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I think probably the reason for that is that, like, you know, the next thing up from that, I'd want to do, like, a little 2D graphics kind of GUI game. Um, and I don't, I don't even know really where to start. I think, would J be the best language? I don't know what array language has the best, like, 2D graphics support. Like, does APL? I know that I've seen tons of webinars that use, like, sorry? Kind of depends on your operating system. I mean, so that's the thing, is that I've been writing um, a little Scrabble game in Python, um, over the last month or so, and I've written it all in Linux, and then I plan to give a talk in the future at some point on it, and I, I figured out, oh, I'll just see if I can go run this on Windows, and I had to just pip3 install all the dependencies, and it worked. I mean, it didn't have the font that I used in, in Linux, but that was the only, that was the only problem. Everything else was perfect, and uh, obviously, that's not the case for every programming language, but, um, yeah, I guess, and, and that's the thing is I get sort of intimidated because the things that I have seen in dialogue webinars about graphics, it's using things that were created uh, in the past. And then like, there's a lot of overhead in terms of HTML dot, um, I can't, what are they called? Canvases and you're rendering things on canvases. And that just seems like a lot of, a lot of hoops that I got to jump through. And Admittedly, probably like if you want to do a 2D graphics program, array programming languages aren't the languages that you want to reach for. Um, but I guess the question is, is, you know, what's the small little project that we should be encouraging people if they sort of want to go that route down where they're going to have the best experience? And a lot of the times... Climb Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I this is also... I'm going on tangents today, but... Uh, I just watched a couple days ago the Aftershock Netflix. It's like a three episode series on, I think it was 2016. There was a massive earthquake. Oh my goodness. It's, it is devastating. Um, I'm not even sure if I recall hearing about that back in 2016, but for folks that want to be encouraged to never go climb Mount Everest, um, because you're, so, you're so scared of like, there was people on the mountain and, um, like depending on where you were on the mountain, there was, you know, a, I don't know how many people died. I think 
in uh, Nepal, I think it was it was thousands um, from the earthquake in, in Kathmandu. Anyways, I, n- I never had ambitions to climb Mount Everest. Uh, but <laughs> Lord knows I, I will never, uh, like, I'm, I'm going to be worried about just going to like the West and East coast where there's faults and stuff. Now, you know, Toronto, I'm pretty safe here. Uh, I don't know if I'm sitting on top of any anyways. Um, hopefully they don't need to go climb Mount Everest cause that's going to be, um, to learn APL cause <laughs> we're going to, that's a real bad, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do hope, you know, people with, uh, there's some way to get, you know, the people who, have the thing they want to do and just don't uh, know how to program it yet. Uh, it would be really cool if there was some way to introduce those people to APL instead of NumPy or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to say you know how that happens because the those people definitely don't want to be early adopters. So you know you need the early adopters to kind of bridge that huge gap. Or crevasse. I, I think yeah, crevasse. Um, I, I think one of the things um, you were talking about community, I think that is one thing that I think everything I've seen in the array languages, the communities are really strong and they're very supportive. Yeah. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've seen other communities that, and I've heard of other communities that might be a little less so. Um, but I think generally people are helpful. But in, in the array programming communities, I find they're very helpful. And I always put that down to the fact that there are usually people who've made the effort to try and learn something that might be a bit different than what they've learned in the past. So they're usually very uh, forgiving to people who don't know something because they've been there maybe quite recently. <laughs> Depending on what my memory's like, it could have been yesterday. Um, and I'm trying to figure something out that they're trying to figure out as well. But um, I think the community thing is really strong. But I think the other thing you touched on that I think is really key and, and Marshall's touching on it as well, is you have to choose the areas where you drop the barrier or lower the barrier so that if you decide that, that you want to use uh, uh, an array language for game programming, I'm not saying it's a tool you should use, but at the very least, if you want to attract that audience, you should be making it, uh, for one thing, clear about how J would interact with the tools that you might want to use or an array language might uh, might interact with the tools that you might want to use to create a game, but also to make, if, if you were using an array language as a glue language, um, how that could be done really effectively. So you don't have to go invent all that, but you can put a person in the position that they can start working from that point, and you would generate, I'm, I'm pretty sure with the elegance of the array languages and the um, the ability to them for them to quickly develop and prototype so well, I really think that's the area that if you can put those barriers low, people will just come in and use it because it's 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 available. What's happening now is those things, if they are available, haven't been identified to outsiders, so they don't even know they're there. Um, when the talk I was down in Victoria. We were talking about databases and, and JD, which is the J database, which can't compete with JD plus, uh, JDB plus. It, you know, it, it's not in the same field. It's not trying to do the same things. But you mean KDB plus? K, sorry, KDB plus. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was thinking JDB plus. I haven't heard of this. Uh. Or JDB was the old name for JD. So, ugh. but but JD has a purpose. It's not at that that super high, super fast level. But it does do some things very well and is relatively easy to use, but people don't even know it's there. 
And so I think that's that's common. Yeah. Well, it's it's really intended to be a tool for J programmers. So um, in that way, its audience is kind of... But I think a lot of J programmers don't know it's there. Yeah, that may be. Let me come back to the question, you, the point you're just raising about community, because I propose that there's a significant difference between the communities for a large language and for a small language. If I'm looking at learning Python, for example, I know, like Connor says, there's libraries out there for just about anything I could want to do. Uh, if I scout around a little bit on the web, I'll find there's examples all over and all kinds of form. In fact, um, in a sense, it's, it's almost a little off-putting because um, in nibbling into the language, I've found actually there's some pretty crap examples out there. Yeah. Offered as offered as exemplary code and ways of doing things. And, um, I had a little project a, co a couple of years ago to find um, to show Python and equivalent programs in Python and Q. And I look for a program to do something in Python, and then I put the Q program up, and I think actually this kind of looks like a straw man. I need I, I need a better Python program, and I'd figure out an array like way to do it. So that at least you've got some some kind of comparability between between the two um, uh, ways of doing things. And um, so I know the Python community is there is kind of big, and I'll find answers out there. I expect I'd find answers in Stack Overflow. But if you go to a small language community. You're going to find a high proportion of language champions and enthusiasts, not just people who are using it and know how to do shit, but people who actually want you to understand and adopt the language. So it's going to be kind of a more welcoming place. And I would expect, say, if I go to the BQN community, I'd find better quality code. So I'm going to be learning at a, a I've got the opportunity to learn at a higher level than if I go starting to learn Python or C-sharp. Any thoughts on that? Um, you get kind of an interesting mix, because uh, like I said, there are a lot of people in BQN who are new to array programming. So they're not bad programmers or anything, but they, they're not really familiar with the idioms yet. And a lot of the times they do write uh, BQN code that can pretty easily be simplified, like a lot. Um, so you see, and I mean, there are definitely a lot of people as well who are who have some array programming experience or or have spent uh, enough time with BQN that they've really gotten used to it and write very good code as well. Um, so, um, yeah, it's hard to say, uh, and I wouldn't really know another array or another language community in depth enough to compare them. But uh, you definitely get a bit of both. Um, yeah, one thing I've noted is that. Uh, like BQN has a lot of things that could be made in libraries for the language, but there are not really a lot of people stepping up who want to like write this. Um, and partly I think that's because a lot of people don't, you know, have the confidence in themselves that they really should. Um, but it's hard to say. I, I don't think I fully understand really why, why people, you know, are very enthusiastic about um, doing like advent of code but not necessarily about making uh, little libraries to, you know, work with uh, JSON or whatever. I mean, 
I can kind of answer that from my personal experience, which is that I only have one library that is officially hosted on some kind of package management uh, repository. Any guesses what language that's in? C++. Nope. Um, I'm going to say Haskell. Nope. Well, I'll go with Python. <laughs> it's not Python. The language is Racket. Ah. And that's because the ability to post something to Racket like, is so easy. I, didn't, I don't know anything about Racket. I mean, I've co it used to be in my top five favorite programming languages. And, you know, I, I did the SICP structure interpretation of computer programming uh, textbook, which you can do in Racket or Scheme. Um, and it was just so easy that I thought, why not? And I found that the algorithm's package name was still available. And I was like, well, that seems, that seems like, you know, God is speaking to me. It's like <laughs> algorithms, headers from C++. And I don't know how Racket could, no one could have name squatted on this. I guess the community's small. And so I just like, I created, I think my initial motivation was that there was no, there was folds. Uh, that come with Racket, Fold L and Fold R, but there was no scans, and that irritated me. So I was, and I went and searched in other um, uh, libraries, and I, I couldn't really find one. And, and Racket has a bunch of issues about it that there's a bunch of dialect issues because it's, you can very easily create your own language. But anyways, I just created the small library. It was a couple of years ago. Added the scans and then a few other algorithms that I really like. And then randomly in the last like couple months, a couple people said, oh, I'm going to port this to Guile, which is a, another scheme dialect. And they've been making like code contributions and fixing up my documentation of which there was, you know, very little. But it's just, it's once again, it's that barrier to entry. And the other thing is, is that Racket is such a simple language that, and, and Lisps in general, that I was less intimidated, that I was really going to make something bad. You know, it might not be as performant based on a couple of my implementations of things, but because it's such a simple language, I'm not, I'm not worried that it's going to be like, oh, if you do something in C++, you know, you haven't considered forward referencing. And in C++ 17, they added this language feature that's going to simplify it. And getting just a billion people telling me that I'm doing something suboptimally is like the area that you could do something, the surface area that you could do something suboptimally in Racket is quite small. That like it's mostly going to be per for, you know, formatting or something. And I think definitely for BQN, like I don't, I'm not at the level where I think, I could write something that wouldn't just be completely needed to be rewritten, basically. Um, and th I, th I think that's the case for many, many languages. That's true, but I'd kind of hope people would, you know, write something that we need now, even if, uh, I mean, and right now we don't even have a package manager, so you, you could not submit a, a package. You could, you could write the code and, um, you know, tell the forum, hey, I wrote this utility code. Um, which people are, um, you know, on there to say I wrote this program or that program, uh, but very rarely, you know, frameworks that you would that another programmer would uh, be able to use for a different problem. Um, so I'd kind of hope people would in BQN feel comfortable writing something that maybe isn't the best, but also nobody else has done. Right. There's a great there's a great quote by I think it's attributed to Joe Armstrong, the creator of Erlang. And that it says, uh, make it first, make it work, then make it beautiful, then make it fast if you need to. And I heard this actually from my thesis advisor. I think I'd heard it before, but um, he had said it when he wanted me to start writing some code in Smalltalk or something. 
And I said, no, no, no I'm, not, I'm not ready yet. I haven't learned enough. And he said, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. He's like, this, enough of that. You are, you've been programming for you know, a number of years. You definitely know enough to get started. It doesn't need to be perfect. And I think there's this, um, this Im- intimidation factor of like, well, I, ne- I haven't learned enough and I don't know all the language features in order to make this like perfect on my first go. When really, you shouldn't be intimidated. You should just write it. Know that it's going to need a bunch of refactoring and it's not going to be perfect, but you you should have something that's at least running partially for what you need to get done before you start worrying about, is this fast enough or is this beautiful enough? Just make it work first. Then, you know, make it look really nice. And then if you need to optimize it, because it might turn out, you know, as Marshall's mentioned before, and we've talked about this, is that a lot of times you don't need things to be, you know, it's running in a fraction of a section, second anyways. Sure, it might be using some quadratic algorithm, but going from quadratic to linear is just going to be a fraction of a section, sec, uh, a second to, you know, still a fraction of a second. So you're not, you're not even going to notice it. Um, and the computer time, human time interface is that if a computer is doing it very slowly, it seems very quick to us in a lot of cases when you're getting reaction back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have this process of it can do billions of computations every second and you think you're going <laughs> to, you're going to waste time on that. <laughs> So I think from what I'm gathering off this episode and we're getting towards wrapping it up is there's a lot of work to be done. I think that's the very basic level. And the idea is to identify the audiences that might be interested and make it easy for them to use the languages. Um, Do other people have things they would like to add before we wrap up? I I guess I can add, like, probably the biggest thing that we have going for array languages is all these... um, online REPLs, uh, you know, APL, BQN, J. Uh, there is one for KX and, and Q, I believe. And even, yeah, and even um, like Neow, I believe you can access on TIO, um, the tried online website. And yeah, that is, I mean, having a REPL in terms of getting started, it doesn't help with the barrier to entry of a small project, but it does definitely help with the barrier entry to your first line of code. And uh, maybe, yeah, maybe there's some graphic that is the barrier to entry to, and then insert a bunch of things. First line of code, you know, small project, large project. And I think it's the project ones that is where a lot of work needs to be done, at least from my perspective, because I haven't gotten to that point for for one reason or another, Um, whether it's package management or the fact that I'm choosing the wrong thing for to do a small project in. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I'll let Connor do the wrap-up because he does it so well, and I'll mention ArrayCast.com. Actually, I'll also mention, uh, we also have a resources page on the, the uh, site. It's probably could be updated. I should, probably should spend some time doing that. But it does have links to a lot of the information on the different languages and where you can find more information. I think that will be very useful. Um, and also, I think earlier, before we started this, you mentioned APL Orchard Marshall, which is a really great, and the APL Wiki. Oh yeah, we skipped over that entirely. Um, yeah, but there are there are you know ways online to get involved with people who know the languages very well and are supportive, and um, you can you know there are ways to lower the barriers. Unfortunately, at this point, we're still working on putting the lo- the barriers lower. Um, and so there still may be barriers you have to overcome, but there are people to help you over the barrier right now. So that's always a good thing. Yep. Awesome. 
And with that, we'll say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming. Happy array programming, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>